Welcome to episode number 90 of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. This is the podcast we're building a global community around process safety and industries handling combustible dust. I'm your host, Dr. Chris Cloney, and today's episode is a little bit different. We're doing a review of the 2020 Dust Safety Week. This is an annual event that's hosted by Canadian Biomass and Canadian Forest Industries. It's used to highlight dust safety best practices, technical information, and solutions for industries handling combustible dust. Both Canadian Biomass and Canadian Forest Industries are media partners with Dust Safety Science, and we're really impressed by this initiative and this event that they've hosted now over the last number of years. It really has an excellent educational program that's particularly relevant for wood and wood processing industries and has a focus on Canadian-specific industries as well. So as I mentioned, this is an annual event. It runs in 2020. It ran from June 22nd to June 26th. And it's an online week-long process where they every day post a educational article, webinar, piece of material that's relevant to audiences and industries handling combustible dust. I really like the initiative, one, because it's excellent, as I mentioned, educational material, but it has a very large collaboration focus or collaborative focus. It has profiles and stories from operators, safety and industry associations are involved, has recent experimental testing programs in the 2020 version, and we'll talk about in this episode a little bit. It has information from experts, consultants, and equipment providers, and also looks at research activities like what we're doing at Dust Safety Science. So it really brings all these groups together to prevent relevant information, and it brings them together in a way that really leads into understanding best practices and, and current approaches for combustible dust safety. So we'll have a link in the show notes of this episode at dustsafetyscience.com slash 90 to the various articles that were released as part of Dust Safety Week. And in this episode, we're going to talk through some of these. So we're going to talk about lessons learned from the BC sawmill explosions in 2012, recent lost history in wood and wood products industries, the current status of risk and hazard assessment, um, and recent research best practices and safety equipment for preventing and protecting from dust explosions and dust fires from happening. So kicking off Dust Safety Week this year was an article by David Murray, Corporate Safety, HR, and Environment Manager for Gorman Group and Co-Chairperson of the Manufacturing Advisory Group in British Columbia. The article is entitled, Lightning Doesn't Have to Strike, and it covers David's experience in the wood handling industries within British Columbia during the 2012 sawmill explosions that occurred at Babine Forest Products and at Lakeland Mills. Although David wasn't directly involved with either of these companies, he shares the experience at a time when we were really at a critical turning point in British Columbia in terms of combustible dust safety, and in particular, wood handling industries. So he sort of talks at the very start of the article about what was going on right after the explosion. And really, there were all these theories kind of floating around about what happened. Um, they'd never seen anything like this this magnitude at the facility before, or even in any other sawmills in, in British Columbia, in the region. And he said that this theory came up that the explosion occurred due to floating fine dust that comes from the sawmill operations. And in the article, he talks about, you know, they were aware of electrical arc flash, on um, their safety attention towards respiratory and inhalation of, of sawdust. But wood dust wasn't viewed as a key factor in fire and explosion safety, or at least explosion safety at the facility, and certainly wasn't expected to have such a, a large-scale mass of explosions they saw at this uh, event in January of 2012. The interesting part here was that David started digging into the history for combustible dust and into the NFPA standards. And he there's a, a paragraph here that really resonated with 
what I see a lot of industries when they, they first start coming into combustible dust. So I'll read the paragraph. My initial reaction to discovering what was needed to protect against a dust explosion was that of incredulousness. No dust more than two pennies thick anywhere? Question mark. No dust in any motors, electrical boxes, or anything that generates heat? Full containment of suction systems on everything that produced dust? These standards were unheard of in sawmills, and to make them happen would require industry and its stakeholders to undergo a bold collective step change that didn't even see possible at the time. So I highlight this because it's a sentiment that's shared almost universally with every new industry, facility, manager, or even personnel when they first realize that they might have a combustible dust fire explosion hazard or risk at their facility. You know, once they start digging in, wow, we need to do all that to stop this from happening. And then they kind of, a lot of the time, will sort of start to back off and David didn't talk about it in his uh, article specifically, but he was saying that, you know, they started taking some baby steps was quite hard because of just the size and sheer number of things and the cost and everything else associated with protecting from dust explosions. Unfortunately, it was only a couple months later when the true power of this, the fact that this isn't something that is just a one-off was, was made true. And four months later, on April 23rd, they had a second fatal sawmill explosion in B.C., so this showed that it wasn't a one-off or a fluke, you know, even if these are, you know, it wasn't a rare event, that they might have a systematic problem here or systematic challenge here at sawmills in British Columbia and elsewhere in the world as well. So in the article, David talks about some of the process that they went through over the last almost decade now in improving combustible dust safety in these sawmills. And you look at reports from WorkSafe BC on their investigations, on their percent compliance rates, and see that what they've done is working or at least working in the terms of regulatory bodies going in and doing these audits, determining that there's more compliance in these facilities. And he highlights a couple of key areas. One is investigation into lower severity dust, fire, and explosions, and close calls than was seen before. So really looking into whenever you have a near miss, what caused that, and looking into how that can be avoided in the future. He talks about seven-figure investments in engineering and dust extraction, explosion control, and warning devices. He talks a lot about worker training, including supervisors, safety specialists, and regulatory agents. He talks about audits and risk assessments and hazard analysis. And last, he talks about a, a key element, which is trust. He talks about industry employers and employees, regulators, safety associations, the unions involved, the stakeholders, all in maintaining a world-class combustible dust risk mitigation standard had to be built and bridges of trust had to be built there and accountability within each entity and across each relationship. I think this is really powerful. This is the, the way to move forward across all industries handling combustible dust is get the regulators and the industry associations and the facilities themselves all together attacking the problem sort of as one cohesive unit. But it takes a long time. It takes a lot of trust takes a lot of accountability. It takes a lot of relationship building between those entities to make that happen. And you can see that now in BC where we have a lot of different groups, a lot of different working groups that are tackling different problems related to combustible dust. And the last part from David's article that I want to leave off on in this summary is that he mentions that complacency related to combustible dust really transcends industries. It transcends geography. And he said that during his journey through this, 
and I'll, I'll quote here, it seemed that attention given to combustible dust had imaginary borders based on a variety of factors unrelated to the risk. And we really see this. There's these imaginary borders that are constructed between industries, between geographies, even between you know facilities that are in the same industry that are competitors, that that won't happen here, that can happen here. Our dust is combustible, is, is not combustible. Um, it's totally unrelated to the risk. I really liked hearing that or that, that visualization of these imaginary borders are, are constructed between industries and really block information sharing, which makes it harder to to make them safe. And if I could think of one thing that I'd like to safety science to be doing, it's to be tearing down these imaginary borders. And even with this dust safety week that uh, Canadian Biomass and Canadian Forest Industries are hosting, this is a great step towards doing this. So I really like that as a starting article for dust safety week. In terms of our contribution from dust safety science, we had just released our 2019 combustible dust incident report. So we submitted an article talking about the lost history from the report and also looking specifically at wood and wood products industries and how they related to the incidents that we were seeing. So since we started the incident reporting in 2016, we've been doing this now going into our fourth year, but we've done reports on 16, 17, 18, and 19, so four years. We've recorded 632 fires, 243 explosions, 417 injuries, and 45 fatalities across the globe in injuries handling combustible dust. From our reporting, injuries and fatalities most commonly happen from dust explosions, but large facility loss in terms of dollars typically come from fires. So you can see how important it is to consider both of these. You want to keep your personnel and your workers safe, you need to prevent from explosions. If you want to keep your product and your facility safe, they need to protect from fires. So you really need to have a comprehensive approach to your, your dust safety program. In terms of wood and wood products industries, these resulted in 26% of the incidents in 2019 that we saw, but it resulted in 34% of the injuries and 37% of the fatalities reported in 2019. Also in our incident reporting, we, as historically has been seen, saw that dust collectors were the most frequently reported piece of equipment for dust fires and explosions, but they weren't necessarily the most deadly piece of equipment. A lot of the time we were seeing fatalities caused in storage silos, bins, other store types of storage, elevators and conveyors, and different types of equipment besides dust collection systems actually resulting in injuries and fatalities once you have an incident. In the article for Dust Safety Week, we also listed some of the incidents that happened in wood and wood processing entries in 2019. In North America, we had a couple of incidents that resulted in injuries. In one, a contract worker was injured from a flash fire that occurred when he was working on ducting at an oriented bo strand board plant. It was unclear if hot work is, was being completed at the time, but a flash fire happened while he's working on the duct work and, and injured that contractor. In another incident, contractors were welding a hopper containing sawdust and caused an explosion. And in response to this, a firefighter was hospitalized for heat-related issues during the response. The last one that we mentioned from North America here was that local media reported residents hearing explosion at a particle board plant. Later, the company indicated that deflagration was safely vented, and that the sound the community was hearing were the vents panels opening, and this present, prevented the uh, piece of equipment that the explosion occurred in from, from being damaged. Four employees in this case were hospitalized for smoke inhalation and treatment. Also in 2019, fires were reported in a dust collector at a woodworking shop, at a wood pellet plant, and at a sawmill due to sawdust igniting on an exhaust manifold all in North America. 
These incidents resulted in injuries to four employees and one firefighter. Internationally, more tragic disasters were reported in woodworking industries, including fatal dust explosions in Belgium and Spain, and a fatal fire involving a sawdust dump station at a plywood factory in Minamar, all in 2019. So if you want access to the, the article itself, um, it's published as part of Duff Safety Week. It is entitled, Wood and Wood Products, Lost History from the 2019 Combustible Dust Incident Report. Or if you actually want to read the incident report or get access to yourself that yourself, you can go to dustsafetyscience.com slash 2019 hyphen report. So those two articles then talk around lessons learned from an actual explosion that happened in British Columbia in 2012. Talks about more recent lost history in wood and wood products industries. A number of the articles that were following up after that talked about risk assessment and hazard assessment and hazard identification at facilities. First one of these was actually published by WorkSafe BC. Again, this really illustrates the collaborative approach here. You have regulators publishing educational articles along with consultants, along with experts, along with equipment providers, bring this together in one space to educate uh, the, the broader audience with. There's a couple of key points here in the WorkSafe BC article that I want to highlight. Uh, this article is entitled Risk Assessment, the First Step to Controlling Combustible Dust Hazards. Um, again, it's published by WorkSafe BC as part of Dust Safety Week. Uh, they have some points around finding the right professional, and they mention that you need you should be asking for documentation, such as resume or CV. That includes the individual's job title or expertise, responsibilities, and employment history. You should ask for proof of their expertise, such as copies of degrees, certificates, licenses, and previous reports. And that you should be contacting references for folks that are helping you with your risk assessment or your, your hazard assessments at your facilities. They also give a list of what to analyze during the risk assessment. You need to analyze all buildings and structures on site, concealed spaces such as attics, false ceilings, elevated horizontal surfaces, basement areas, fully or partially contained or enclosed or compartmentalized areas, mechanical and electrical equipment, outside areas adjacent to buildings and structures, processes that use, consume, produce, or handle combustible dust, and any work activities that may introduce potential ignition sources, just to name a few. So I want to mention, it's almost a, a footnote or a very small part of this article, but I think it's very important and very powerful. And we'll tie it into some of the other articles that we talk about as well. But in a section on reviewing and revising your risk assessment findings, there's a, a sentence here that says, a risk assessment report does not need to be fancy, just needs to outline the basic hazards and levels that these risks pose to workers. You will use as a basis for your company's annual safety plan to help you set priorities and goals for minimizing risk while using available resources as efficiently as possible. This is a really important point here. The point that's being made is that the, the hazard assessment, the dust hazard analysis, or the risk assessment, is just the starting point. It's not the end point. The end point really is integrating this into, um, and from WorkSafe BC standpoint, an annual safety plan. We're able to prioritize what to do first, what to do next, how to use your available resource efficiently. This all feeds back into your risk assessment. So your risk assessment or your dust hazard analysis is really a start of the journey that gives you ideas that should feed into your quarterly or your annual or your broader safety plan over time. This point is emphasized even further in an article by Jeremy Slonwhite of Rembi, Inc. And the article is entitled The Who, What, When, and Why of Dust Hazard Analysis. And he talks through more of the technical aspects of DHAs as outlined by NFPA 652. So it gives the definition that dust hazard analysis is a systematic review to assess a process or facility in terms of combustible dust safety and needs to be led by someone with knowledge and experience and understanding in identifying combustible dust hazards. 
the key point here that he makes in the article is that you need to walk through each area, each process operation, each piece of equipment, and each line connecting each piece of equipment and ask whether or not there's a risk, ask whether or not it's up to date with what safeguards are in place and whether or not those are are uh, meeting the NFPA guidelines or exceeding the NFPA guidelines, then make recommendations on those. And in the article, Jeremy gives uh, a nice kind of checklist. So it's uh, given as an image in the article, but I'll read off it here. Is combustible dust present? Yes or no? Method or likelihood for dust suspension in the air greater than the MEC, the minimum exposal concentration? Yes or no? Are there ignition sources? List these, consider all potential ignition sources. Is there deflagration or explosion risk? So you can look at, get your dust tested, figure out if you have a, a deflagration risk associated with this. Then what are the control methods that are in place? And what is the gap between these control methods and the generally accepted you know, best practice for engineering guidelines if you're looking at a prescriptive approach? Or if you're looking at a performance-based approach, then you need the documentation to make some recommendations there. But looking at what is the gap between where it's at today and where it needs to be to meet the, the minimum required level of safety for combustible dust, make recommendations on that. And Jeremy mentions towards the end of his article that the, the job is not finished when you prepare your DHA document. In fact, the real work is just beginning. The DHA team must then use the identified recommendations to prepare a prioritized action item list with specific tasks, assigned parties, target timeframes, required resources. I really like this as a concept. Again, if you think about the first article by WorkSafe BC, you could think about this as your quarterly safety plan or your annual safety plan, breaking down how you're going to implement the things from your hazard assessment or your risk assessment. So further diving into some more of the technical aspects of dust hazard analysis, there was a free webinar given by Francis Petit of Vets Group and also by Jeremy Slonwhite on demystifying the dust hazard analysis. And in this, there's some more background given on DHAs, how an authority having jurisdiction are incorporated into this, the requirements there. Also talking about qualifications of providers, who should be doing these types of uh, hazard analysis and hazard assessments, what their background level of experience is. There's another article, a summary article posted by PJ Boyd that talks about DHAs being an essential tool and gives a review of that, that uh, webinar as well. The last article I want to mention on, on this point of hazard assessment, hazard analysis, is given by the folks at Fowski & Associates, and it's entitled The Importance of Particle Size When Conducting a Dust Hazard Analysis. And it was written by Mark Uich and Dr. Ashok Dasadar. It actually gives some actual experimental test data for some different samples of wood dust. So there is a sample where they take the fines, so 80 to 90% less than 75 micron, from two different samples of wood dust. There's uh, another set of test data from what they call large particles, where only 10 to 20% is less than 75 microns of the same materials. And then a coarse set of dust that has 70 to 90% greater than 500 microns. So the same two samples, but sieved to different levels for different particle size distributions. And then looking at the experimental data for these six different sets of combustible dust samples. Next, we show some charts around KST, which for the fine powders range from 60 to 110 bar meter per second. For the large particle sizes, so only having 10 to 20% less than 75 micron, this is ranging around 50 bar meter per second. And for the coarse, broader particle sizes, it's ranging between 
around 15 and, and 30 barometer per second. So this is a very wide range of samples, but you see that all of them were explosible. And you see that the, the smaller dust size exploded more violently, more rapidly, but that all, all the three samples were explosible regardless. And the importance here is that at your facility, you'll probably have pieces of equipment with all these different particle sizes in there. You may have courses at the coarse dust sizes at the, the start of the processing operation, and really fine particle sizes, maybe collecting your dust collector or another piece of equipment that are downstream. They need to assess the risk level with these different particle sizes. In the same vein, they give in the article minimum explosible concentration for these different combustible dusts. This range is anywhere from 50 grams per meter cubed for the finest particle size to 150 or so grams per meter per cube for the large size. And for the coarse dust samples, they see 200 to 800 grams per meter cubed. So much more dust is needed for the large particle sizes to have an explosive concentration. This is most likely because it's actually the fines that are in that sample that are contributing to the explosion. But you don't need very many fines to be able to have an explosion. That's the, the key point there. So the coarse dust had 75 to 90% greater than half a millimeter, so very large particle size, but it was the fines still in that sample that were allowing it to be explosible. I think this is a really key, important area to demonstrate, and I was happy to see that, that Fowski and the team there did this article showing actual experimental test data for wood samples with different particle sizes. So that's it for the articles that are covering current status of risk and hazard assessment. By way of summary, we have the WorkState BC article on the first step to controlling your combustible dust hazards. That's a risk assessment. We had the who, why, what, when, and how of dust hazard analysis by Jeremy Slonwhite. I think I added an extra W in there, but that's fine. We had a webinar around demystifying the dust hazard analysis. We had this article by Fowski and Associates on the importance of particle size when conducting a DHA as well. And as I mentioned in the outset, if you go to dustsafetyscience.com slash 90, we'll have at the bottom of the page here in the resources sections links to all these articles if you're interested in picking out a specific one to, to dig into more deeply. So then to close off this episode on Dust Safety Week, I want to talk about some articles that we're talking about recent research that was published as part of these educational articles by Canadian Biomass and Canadian Forest Industries. First of these was entitled, Our Explosion Isolation Flap Valve Safe by Fike. If it sounds familiar, we, we actually had Jim Bingerhoots from Fike on the podcast a few episodes ago in episode 84 talking about this exact same topic. And this is around experimental testing that was done by Fike on these explosion isolation flap valves. So the flap valves themselves are required to comply with NFPA 69, which states that they require third-party testing and certification. And this is generally done in Canada as per EN 16447, which is the testing standard that is used on these, these type of explosion isolation flap valves. So you can go to episode 84 of the podcast where we talk with Jim Vingerhoots to get the, the details on the background on the technical side of this. The Dust Safety Week article also gives some, some information there as well. But in, in summary, Fike did a lot of testing with these flat valves and found that the certification testing standards in EN 16447 may not actually represent the stresses and strains and loadings that these type of devices are put under when they're actually in use in a facility. And they highlight three key areas here. So one is that the testing standard doesn't require a pipe to be put on the 
detected side of the explosion. What I mean by that is you have, say, a dust collector or a piece of equipment, the ducting goes back and the flap valve is put on that, and then the ducting continues to the processing operation that's feeding, say, the dust collector. So when an explosion happens in the dust collector, it propagates upstream, and the flap valve should stop it from continuing to propagate back into the facility. The difficulty here with the testing standard is it doesn't require this extra length of ducting. Um, it just has the a vessel that represents the, say, dust collector, has the ducting and the explosion isolation flap valve, but doesn't have any ducting that, as would be seen in the facility. And through their testing, Fike found that this has a, a dramatic impact on the stresses and strains on the flap valves. What happens is the explosion, when the, the explosion propagating, the flap valve slams shut. Then you have this big vacuum that forms behind it in this upstream protected area in the ducting. And this vacuum puts a large pressure load on the flap valve. And then you also have this recoil as the, the fluid, the air, the dust-laden air, slams back against the valve again. And then you sort of have this uh, oscillating vacuum pressure. I think in the article they mentioned they did 14 tests with the piece of ducting on. And 13 of the 14 allowed the explosion to propagate past the isolation valve. So this is you know, obviously not very not good. It was one of the key findings from this work. They also had two other findings. One was that you really need to be careful about how you're triggering the flap valve. A lot of cases, this is done in a way that's not realistic towards what would be seen in one of these pieces of equipment that are put in operation. And if it's not done in a realistic manner, they may not actually capture the correct timing and the correct loading on the flap valves. And also, you needed the, the same protection method on the vessel that's actually being used in the facility itself. So if it's suppression, it needs to be suppression. If it's venting, it needs to be venting. It can't just be a, a vessel with an open window or an open uh, hole in it because that changes the dynamics of the explosion. The explosion then preferentially go towards that open hole and not towards the flap valve, which keeps the loadings lower. At the end of the article, Fike mentions that they brought this to the attention of Ian 16447 in May of 2020, and they're currently working with them now to come up with an update on this testing standard. They also recommend that any flat valves that are in place now really need to be looked at critically, see how they were tested and certified, and whether or not some of the shortcomings that they found in their testing may apply those as well. And if that's the case, then they might need to be retested or de- decertified or derated, or in the worst case scenario, replaced if they aren't going to operate safely when you have an explosion. Another article that was published that demonstrates these sort of best practices and the most recent research and resources is by Fahiman Yazdan. And that's entitled Best Practices for Managing Wood Fiber Storage and Combustible Dust. This is the result of a collaborative effort by the Wood Pellet Association of Canada's Safety Committee, the BC Forest Safety Council, the MAG Group, Manufacturing Advisory Group, and WorkSafe BC, where they established a working group to lead the process on developing best practices for combustible dust management in wood fiber storage. The outcome of this working group was a risk and mitigation document, a gap analysis tool, so a sheet that you can kind of check off and figure out where the gaps might be in your current systems, um, and a safety bulletin that covered some educational components to this area. I'm not going into the technical details here because there's a lot of great information. I encourage you to go check out the article. But the point I want to make is that this was a really large collaborative effort from the Woodpell Association of Canada, BC4 Safety Council, MAG, um, WorkSafe BC, 
This is really the spirit of what Dust Safety Week is all about. It's also the spirit of what David Murray was talking about in his article talking about the, the 2012 BC sawmill explosions, where you really need this collaborative approach by industry, by the safety associations, by the unions, by regulators in order to get things done. And this document, this checklist by these these groups in this article is really highlights this. And I really want to applaud them for putting the effort in to do that. And this is actually a set of documents I've sent to others around the world on managing these type of hazards. So we've gotten this question a couple times over the years, and I have something I'd send them because this group put the effort together to actually create that material. In addition to these recent research and best practices articles, there are also a couple articles on safety equipment in general. There's one entitled What to Look for When Selecting Dust Control Equipment, and this was by Mike Lewis of Boss Tech, talking about their dust suppression equipment. So this is mist-based equipment that is keeps the dust levels down in areas where you're handling large piles of, say, sawdust or in uh, large rooms where you have your, your either piles that are feeding the inflow to your equipment or they have storage areas. So there's some really interesting points in this article around how you can use this type of suppression equipment. So you can't just use a garden hose and, and wet the dust. The reason that doesn't work is one that's wetting the material that's on the ground, not the material that's in the air, which is the, the stuff that you want to stop from the fugitive dust that you want to stop from migrating from one area to another. And two, if you were to, say, take a garden hose and spray it into the air, you have these really large droplets. And what they explain in the article is that the large droplets, if you have very small dust particles, so say if you have dust particles that are on the order of 10 to 50 micron and droplets that are on the order of, say, millimeters, the dust particles just go around the droplets because of the aerodynamics of those large drops. You really need a, a mist size that's the same size as the dust that you're handling. So if you have dust that's, say, around 50 micron, you want water drops that are around 50 micron. These can only really be done with, say, atomizers and correct dispersion equipment. It's kind of interesting to see this. Um, and obviously, Mike was talking about the Boss Tech products here and how they provide that sort of solution, the sort of ranges that you can get. So it was an interesting article for me to understand the dynamics of this type of dust suppression equipment. There's also another equipment spotlight article on dust collection and uh, explosion protection equipment. This covered a variety of uh, providers, including Airmax, which is the Western Canadian distributor for Sonic Air fans. We covered Sonic Air fans back in episode 66 of the podcast with Jordan Newton, where we talked about using Sonic Air fan systems to prevent combustible dust accumulations in overhead areas. The article from Dust Safety Week also includes the Remby Targo event, which is an event that doesn't open completely, but only opens partial way. So it acts almost like a vent plus a deflector. So that the fireball is ejected up at a 30 or 45 degree angle, so it doesn't come straight out the, the side of the, say, dust collector piece of equipment. Then you don't need to have both a deflector and explosion vent. Also, there's equipment around IEP, their smart DS dynamic explosion detection system. So smarter ways to detect on pressure and, and trigger your explosion protection devices. I talked about the suppression equipments provided by Fike, uh, CV Technologies suppression equipment as well, and the different features and benefits of those types of equipment. Uh, fireflies, spark detection, extinguishing systems, and also these uh, Boss Tech dust suppression water mist systems as well. So, if you're interested in any of these types of equipment, the article here was called Equipment Spotlight Dust Collection and Suppression Equipment. In 2020, and this was uh, also you know one of the other articles that was released through Dust Safety Week. 
So that's it for this episode of the Dust Safety Science Podcast. We covered the Dust Safety Week that was provided by Canadian Biomass and Canadian Forest Industries. This is really a collaborative initiative that they do every year where they post educational material every day for a week. This one ran from June 22nd to 26th, 2020. Um, And you can access all these articles. They're still up there now. Um, And we just want to go through and really highlight some of the key points here on collaboration, on education, on recent research, because it's really great to see this one-stop place to find all this kind of material being created. In the episode itself, we talked through lessons learned from BC sawmill explosions in 2012, recent lost history in wood and wood products industries, current status of risk and hazard assessment in the articles there, and recent research and best practices and safety equipment. So again, I want to applaud the collaborative approach that was given here. Uh, Dust Safety Week, companies coming forward to share their own experience is really powerful. Groups like MAG, the Manufacturing Advisory Group, Woodpell Association of Canada, BC Forest Safety Council, Canadian Biomass, Canadian Forest Industries, partnering with WorkSafe BC, partnering with the facilities, partnering with the equipment and service providers, really gives a, a really strong educational program as part of Dust Safety Week and something we're excited to be both promoting and be involved in every year as they, they continue to, to put out a great program there. So we did mention a lot of resources and links in this episode. We'll have a nice list of all the articles that were created through Dust Safety Week at dustsafetyscience.com slash 90. You can go to that link and get access to all the articles. If there's one that you want to read in more detail than, than we talked about here. And that's it for this episode. So I want to say stay safe, have a safe and productive week ahead. And I want to say thank you for everything you're doing. You're just handling combustible dust. I want to say thank you to Canadian Biomass, Canadian Forest Industries for putting on Dust Safety Week again this year. Thank you.